the end of the fourth chapter of Mark contains this record. On the same day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Maybe not officially, but it's summer in Michigan. And it's probably safe to say that almost every one of us has a favorite place, some place that we would like to be in the nice weather, And for many of us, that favorite place has something to do with water. We number water skiing or wakeboarding among the sports that we enjoy. Fishing or swimming occupy much of our thoughts and some of our time. Power boating, sailing, kayaking, canoeing are sources of pleasure and relaxation for many of us. And some of us are satisfied just to sit on the shore, enthralled by the movement of the water and the beauty of its ever-changing scenery. From the murky waters of Holloway Reservoir and the Flint River to the clear blue of the Great Lakes, from the gurgle of a stream to the roar of a waterfall to the placid, serene surface of a lake early in the morning, we Michiganders love our water. From the gospel accounts of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's not hard to reach the conclusion that he shared that love. His public ministry began with water, probably in or near the Jordan River where he was baptized. And it came to its end in the familiar scenes of the Lord walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, talking pleasantly with Peter and with John. And many of our memories of other things that he did or said are linked to water. Early in the Gospels, we find him in the barren wastes of Judea being tempted by Satan, the very lack of water of the place adding to his trial. And later we read of his walking along the beaches of Galilee, looking specifically for four men that he was about to call into full-time discipleship. He made his northern headquarters in the fishing village of Capernaum along the shores of this body of water. Some of his most memorable words were spoken on its shores. We're told in the Gospels that once he walked on its troubled surface, twice he ordered exceptional catches of fish taken from its depths. And of course, this dramatic piece of sacred history that is open before us in our worship this morning. If our Lord Jesus had a favorite place in all the earth, that place seems to have been related to water, and particularly that water of the Sea of Galilee. We might wonder why. If this is true, why did Jesus love water? And one reason might be that for a little while he was made in our image. And just as he laughed and wept as the Son of Man, 
just as he got hungry and thirsty and weary, just as he benefited from the godly example of a good father and was nurtured by a godly mother, so he shared our love for creation, especially the beauty and the serenity and the power of its water. His love for such things as these would have been greater than ours, I suspect, for he is the one you may remember and you need to believe to whom the Father once said, let us make man in our image. He is the one of whom the Bible says he was in the beginning with God. He was God. All things were made through him. And he is the one who with the Father surveyed all that they had made and concluded it is very good. It's no wonder then that Jesus, who was simultaneously the Son of Man and the Son of God, should love all of creation and love the sea that is a part of that creation. Whatever the reasons for his affection for the sea, our Lord Jesus seems to have been, seems to have loved being near the water, loved being on the water. In fact, in Mark's record of this miracle, the Lord was so relaxed by the motion of the waves and perhaps by the smell of the breeze having first passed across the waters that he fell fast asleep even in the midst of a violent storm. This story is found in all three of the synoptic gospels. We find it in Matthew 8, in Luke 8, and here in Mark 4. And the setting is obviously the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was a large lake or a very small sea that comprises part of the eastern border of the province of Galilee. It runs about 12 miles north and south, about 8 miles east and west. It teems with fish and is described as being one of the most beautiful bodies of water in all the world. It's located more than 600 feet below sea level. It's formed by the Jordan River that empties the springs and the snow fields of the mountains to the north and then runs out the other end of the Sea of Galilee about 60 miles to the south where it terminates in the Dead Sea. And those mountains that lie mainly to the north and somewhat to the west of the Sea of Galilee have the effect of funneling and amplifying the breezes that blow. So often by the time those breezes reach the surface of the Sea of Galilee, they have reached gale strength. And this accounts for the very, very tempestuous storms that occasionally lash its surface. One of those storms struck on the night recorded by Mark. This is a familiar story to even to the most casual of readers of the Bible. We've studied it together in the past. But it's important that from time to time we should give our attention to it for many reasons, one of which is the marvelous statement that it makes about who Jesus is. I'd like to look at this piece of history with you this morning. Mark implies that there was an immediacy about Jesus ordering the boat he was in to move out away from shore and to sail to the other side. Mark says they took Jesus along in the boat just as he was. Evidently meaning that they didn't make any extra plans for the trip. They took no special precautions. They brought no provisions to stow aboard the boat. When he was finished with his teachings at his command, they simply shoved off and they set out just as they were. The men who were with him responded at once to his command. He said, let's go across to the other side. 
and they obeyed him. If there was an urgency attached to this sailing, we have to wonder why. And the answer, or at least part of the answer, might be found in two related passages. In the sixth chapter of this same gospel, we read Mark's description of the end of another experience that Jesus had with a large crowd of people. And we're told on those, those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Immediately, the Lord made his disciples get into the boat and go to the other side. And Mark 6, that re, or John 6, that records the same incident, adds this. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed. Matthew and Mark both tell us that just before the boat set out, Jesus had been working with a very large crowd. And in fact, Matthew tells us that some in the crowd were so impressed by Jesus or something that they had seen him do or heard him say that they wanted to join his disciples. And it may have been this unwanted attention, this misguided attraction that caused the Lord to somewhat hurriedly order his disciples to cast off and head for the other side. In that regard, many of us have been mystified to notice in other church associations and even in this one, that there are people who seem to be strongly attracted to the church who are not visibly or audibly attracted to Christ himself. It's a phenomenon that we know now to be 2,000 years and older. The crown that was destined for the head of Jesus was not made of silver and gold and precious stones, but of thorns. His human hands were not intended to hold a scepter but nails. The true citizens of his kingdom were not those who ate his bread, but those who feast upon his word. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus asked, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he answered his own question by saying, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. This misguided adulation of Jesus and his fleeting popularity with large crowds of people were both an embarrassment to him and an impediment to his work. Easier than sending away the crowds that clung to him was giving the order to sail. The order was given and immediately obeyed by those men who were in the process of learning to trust him. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, but it's interesting to note that we often find details in Mark that are omitted by the others. For example, he is the only one of the three who record this incident to tell us that there was more than one boat involved. Each of them was probably one of the small open fishing boats that were common to that time and that place. They were propelled by sail. And it's important to notice that each of them was probably captained by a man who is familiar with the sea. There may have been landlubbers aboard, but each of these small craft were directed by experienced seamen. And that becomes important when we consider their fear. People unfamiliar with water often get alarmed when a boat moves just a little bit. But the bulk of these men had grown up near the Sea of Galilee. They were second and third generation fishermen. They had derived their livelihood from its depths and were acquainted with all of its ways. And for such men as these to be afraid for their lives is mute testimony to the dimensions 
to the ferocity of that storm. Mark tells us that a great windstorm arose, and the waves were beating into the boat. And then he adds that when the windstorm arose, the Lord was already in the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. We think about the Lord sleeping in this boat, and we have two questions. The first question is, why did he fall asleep in the first place? The second question is, how could he stay asleep when the wind began to shriek, the boat began to rock, and men began to shout? Regarding the first of these questions throughout the Gospels, we learn over and over that Jesus invested 100% of his life in the work God had called him to do. Often he was up early in the morning in prayer. During the day, he was hurrying from place to place and then often spending entire days tending to the needs of the people who came to him. The day that had just ended in the story was such a day and Jesus, the Son of Man, was tired. There was something unusual to the point of being absolutely unique about the character of Jesus. But there was nothing exceptional about his flesh. It was just like yours. It was just like mine. His hands were calloused from working in his stepfather's carpenter shop. There must have been times when his muscles ached. We know that he got hungry that he got thirsty, that he got tired. When they shed his blood, it looked no different from yours and mine. And the pain of the cross was not lessened by his being the Son of God. He got tired not because he stayed up at late, late at night playing games on his computer or watching television. He didn't squander his time and energy reading materials that failed to enhance his godliness or with activities that merely idled the hours away. He got tired because he was deeply, thoroughly committed to the work to which he'd been called, work that ate up his time, work that drained his resources, so that when he lay down in an awkward place, not in a comfortable berth, but on a hard bench seat, he fell fast asleep. And all of us who have been physically tired can understand why Jesus fell asleep. The greater question for us is, though, how could he stay sleeping when the wind began to shriek and the boat began to rock and men began to shout? Thorough exhaustion is probably not the answer. The answer must have something to do with the peace that marked Jesus' life. Can you imagine how well you and I would sleep at night if we were in full possession of the peace of Jesus Christ? We take pills to help us go to sleep. We stir in our sleep at the slightest sound. We wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning either worrying about something or looking for something to worry about. The first sermon I preached in this church was based on this text. And in that sermon, I used an illustration that was very real to my experience because I was the father of a couple of very young children. I spoke of the common experience to young parents of taking a child somewhere to visit, putting the child to bed in the visitor's home, 
getting up to leave if it's winter, stuffing a child into a bulky snowsuit and wrapping them in a blanket, taking them out into the cold air, putting them on the seat of a car, going home, opening the door, again the cold air, lights go on, lights go off, take off the blanket, take off the snowsuit, put them in their bed. They wake up in the morning and have no idea how they went, got there. We've all seen that happen. And we understand that children sleep the way they do because they are yet to learn the immense value of worry. Often in the course of my life as a Christian, and particularly in the last few months, I found myself working, waking up in the darkest hours of the night and finding it necessary to apologize to God again and again for my inability to apply to the circumstances of my life the things I know with my mind to be absolutely true. And I'm sure that's true of many of you as well. If Jesus were a man given to worry, he had things to worry about. All around him, his closest friends thought that they were about to perish. They were men and women and young people who came out to eat from his hand and to experience the benefits of his grace and his power, but whose hearts and minds were blinded to his true identity. And in the distance, Jerusalem, the red flags of suspicion were already beginning to pop up, and soon those who plotted his death would be hard at work. If Jesus were man given to worry, there was much to disturb his sleep, but he slept on. Later, he would say to the, some, of, some of the men who were in that boat with him, My peace I give to you. And surely some of them would have remembered this storm and Jesus sleeping in its midst. This, I trust you know, is his promise to us as well. Someone woke Jesus from his slumber and said to him, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? We wonder what was in the mind of the man who woke Jesus up. We wonder what he expected. For a while among Christians, there was a plaque and a bumper sticker that was popular. It said, expect a miracle. I found that, first of all, trite because it implies that if we know what buttons to push, we can manipulate our God to do our bidding. But I also found it amusing because by definition, a miracle is something that is not expected. It can't be explained. And certainly no one on that boat expected the Lord to do what he was about to do. They needed every hand to hold lines, to help manage the sail, bale water out of the bilge, to move from place to place to correct the balance of the boat. And it's certainly for reasons like this that they woke him up, because they needed every hand to do his share, possibly to save the craft. The last thing in the world that they expected to Jesus to do is, in fact, what he did. It's perhaps not fair to say that God specializes in the unexpected as if everything that God does does not fit the mold of our expectations. But it is certainly true that God sometimes acts in ways that exceed our expectations and defy our sense of that which is possible. There are words of benediction that we use from time to time in this church. They're found in the third chapter of Ephesians, and they say in part, Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. We who have been Christians for any time at all have seen God act this way in our lives as individuals. 
We have seen God act in this way in our marriages and in our families, in our church. And we see it in this familiar piece of sacred history. Roused from his sleep, Jesus sat up on the seat that he had very recently been slumbering on. He looked about him. He saw the terror on the faces of his friends, and he shouted at the wind. We know that he shouted because if he whispered, no one would have heard what he said and be able to record it later. There are preachers and commentators who would have us believe that Jesus spoke gently and soothingly to the wind, using the same tone of the same words that a mother might use to quiet her troubled child. But the language of Matthew and Luke gives us a very different impression because they both tell us that Jesus rebuked the wind as if rising to the defense of his friends. When I was a kid, I didn't have a big brother to fight my fights, to get angry when I was picked on, and to defend me. But now I do, and so do you, and his name is Jesus. More expected than what Jesus did is what the wind did, because it stopped, Mark tells us. Think of all of the miracles that Jesus performed, and I think you will agree with me that with one possible exception, they all took place instantaneously. The water did not gradually become wine. People did not incrementally recover from their leprosy. Lazarus did not slowly emerge from death and from the grave. And as all of these miracles took place in an instant, so we might safely assume this one did as well. Which would mean that there were men who were shouting to be heard above the shrieking of the wind, and in the sudden quiet, they continued to shout for a few seconds, and then perhaps startled by the sound of their own voices. By the way, the one exception would be Jesus' cursing of the fig tree, as I read the Gospels, it seems that one day he approached a fig tree. It was barren, and he cursed it. And it was the next day, the historians tell us, when his disciples saw that same tree, it looked like someone had sprayed it with Roundup. But that does not seem to have been an instantaneous miracle as all of the others were. In other words, the Creator spoke, and creation leapt to obey. One application of this story has to do with the storms that we face in life and the folly of letting Jesus sleep through them. Why pray when you can worry? I saw it printed on the side of a church once. I heard a story once about a man who was driving a wagon along a road, and he came upon a young man with a pack on his back asking for a ride. He stopped and gave the young man a ride who climbed up on the seat and sat next to the driver. His pack still on his back, and the man said, why don't you throw your pack in the back of the wagon? And the young man said, oh, no, no, no. He says, I've troubled you enough for the ride. I'll carry my burden myself. And isn't that so often how we treat the burdens of the trials of life? As if it doesn't even occur to us that Jesus died and rose and lives today and is closer than a prayer from those of us he loves. That's an application. But the main lesson of this story has to do with who Jesus is. 
the disciples were in the process of learning just who Jesus is. It's interesting that we find pronouncements from them. Andrew told Peter, we have found the one of whom Moses wrote. Nathaniel told Peter, we have found the Messiah. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And this all gives the impression that these men came to instant and full faith in Jesus Christ and awareness of who he is. But then we read of their doubts. We read of their missteps. And we understand that this was a developing process in their lives, as indeed it is in ours. The lesson here is that Jesus could give an order to a part of creation and that part of creation rushed to comply with his order. Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We think about those words and we think globally. We think, oh, that wars would cease, that discrimination would cease, that ignorance would go away, that disease would be cured, and that men everywhere would turn to Jesus Christ. And yet, if I'm not mistaken, while that is a prayer that was clearly intended to be used on occasions like this when God's people come together to worship him, it's a prayer with a very personal and individual meaning. When I say in that prayer, forgive us our debts, I'm not thinking about your sins. I'm too busy thinking about my own. When I pray, lead us not into temptation, I hope that God leads you away from temptation, but I'm thinking primarily about my own steps. And when I beg that his will might be done, I'm not thinking about Afghanistan, I'm not thinking about Detroit, but I'm thinking about my own life, and I believe that that's his intention. The Creator speaks from the pages of his word and by his speak spirit. And you and I should want nothing more than the desire and the wisdom and the ability to leap, to obey what he calls us to be and to do as the wind obeyed in the story. May the peace of Jesus Christ be ours today and forever. May the obedience of the wind be ours today and forever. Let us pray. Father, this story is so familiar to most of us that we could recite it from memory. But it also means, our God, that it is so familiar to us that we long ago stopped thinking about the depth and the marvel of its implications in truth. We pray that you would not let that be so today. We thank you for this piece of history. We thank you for the obedience of those men, for the obedience of the wind. We thank you for Jesus, who displays himself once again as being fully aware, fully deserving of our worship and our obedience. Change our lives with these words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.